I'm, I'm kind of a still a little overwhelmed by just, I, I don't know, in that time of worship for me, just feeling this sense of calm and a sense of uh, peace from the Lord. That's what, that's what I got. I don't know if that was the same for you, um, but I kind of forgot how I was going to start this sermon. <laughs> but that's all right. Um, let me start like this. Uh, we've been talking about hospitality and we said from the beginning that we're, we're looking at these two themes in this sermon series, both hospitality and worship. And you might be wondering again, you know, what is, what's the connection between these two things? They seem really different. Uh, and they are in a sense, but they're united in this way, is that God has invited us into, really, into deep relationship and community. First with himself and also with one another. And so we kind of did it a little bit in reverse, but we looked at hospitality because hospitality is really one of the primary ways that God has given us to welcome people in community, to welcome people in family, in relationship. And worship is one of the primary ways that we connect with God in relationship. And you might be thinking, well, um, it, it is a great way to connect with God, but, but what about things like prayer? What about things like serving the Lord? What about things like obedience to the Lord? Are those ways that we connect with God too? And what I want to kind of show you, and we'll start with this today, is show you that, in fact, I believe that all of those things are actually a part of worship. That all of these practices and, and beliefs and actions that we take in relation to God, they all are acts of worship. And actually, we'll see as we go on, the scripture invites us to let everything we do be part of our worship. And so one of the things that I want to focus on today is not, uh, you know, it's not worship just as singing, but it's really worship that is the expression of a life that honors the Lord. And that worship is defined by its object. And what I mean by that is the thing that makes worship worship is whatever it is that's being worshiped and how you approach whoever it is that's being worshipped and honored and glorified. And what makes Christian worship Christian worship is that we're worshiping God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so whenever we talk about worship, and this is hopefully kind of a foundational piece today, whenever we talk about worship, we want to keep that in mind. Worship is defined by God more than it is defined by us. Now, we live in a time and some of you have been in the church long enough to remember when this was quite contentious, but we live in a time where there's lots of different worship styles, right? And I'm talking about music for a moment. Uh, there's lots of different ways that people worship. And in fact, one of the things that I've been planning for this coming Saturday is we've got multiple churches coming together to worship, and I've been trying to think, okay, how does this church worship uh, when they gather in a service? How does this church worship when they gather in a service? How do we worship when we gather in service? And what's, what are some common elements that we can all come to together and not, you know, so to speak, bump somebody out? And that, I think about that because, you know, it's, it's part of something that you do as a hospitable person. When you invite people into your home, you think, well, what kind of food do they like? What types of activities would they enjoy doing? Uh, you know, maybe you like to make, you know, um, you like to do macrame or something, but don't assume that your guest wants to do that. That might not be a fun evening for them. Or maybe you love really spicy food, but the person you're inviting doesn't. Like, probably not a good thing to serve that. I do remember one time we had some friends over at our house. We were just married, 
and I was making my grandmother's famous enchiladas, and I think I put like double the chili powder that I was supposed to, and uh, but for me, I was just like, oh, these are so good, and and Sonia was like, hey, nobody's enjoying this meal, <laughs> you know, and so so you think about those things when you invite people into a space, but at the end of the day, whether the worship will be good or not, it's going to depend a whole lot more on how God feels about it than how we feel about it. Is that fair? And so there's this sense of, of remembering that worship is not about us, but it's all about the one being worshipped. And so what I want to do today is actually kind of do some, some background stuff on worship look a little bit historically about worship, and we're going to spend most of our time in the Old Testament today. And the Old Testament worship is in some ways similar to worship we do today. So if you look in the Old Testament, there's singing, there's instruments, there's clapping of hands and raising of voices. Uh, and so we think about that music piece again. But it's way bigger than that in the Old Testament. It includes things like sacrifices and altars. Uh, it includes all sorts of aspects of life, the way you dress. It includes the way you interact with people. It includes when you rest and when you work. All these things have to do with worship in the Old Testament. And because all of these things, really, they do this. They display honor and glory to God. And that's the definition I want to use for worship for us over the next few weeks, is that worship is to ascribe or to, to, to kind of label, in a sense, to, to say this is what God is like, and to display honor and glory to God in a manner worthy of his character and actions. We talked a little bit about this already when I said that worship is always a response to what God has revealed of himself. We don't just make up things about God and honor him for it. We look to see what God is like and God reveals himself as all these things that we mentioned, gracious, good, holy, powerful, mighty, the creator, the sustainer, all of these things, the redeemer, the reconciler, the one who forgives, the one who restores, the one who heals. And we see all these things about God, and it's out of that that we worship. So our worship should reflect the kind of God that we honor. But our English word is actually really helpful here because worship actually is, the, is a shortened version of kind of a one word and a suffix here, worth-ship. Worth-ship, that's where our word worship comes from. And ship is a, a suffix that just means that what, the condition or character? Sarah's my suffix, queen. Yeah, so friendship is the, the quality of being with a friend, you know, being friends with someone. and, and uh, a clerkship is a, a person who has the qualities and the title of a clerk. And so worthship is when it, it's that character and quality of ascribing worth to someone. And so worship is essentially, the simple definition is just showing by our words and actions what God is worth to us. Showing by our words and actions what God is worth to us. And this is what you get in the Old Testament. You get over and over, the people seeking to display to God, to each other, and to the nations what God is worth to them. 
And I think sometimes it's good to have that reminder. So let's look at a couple of aspects of Old Testament worship. We're going to look at some scripture. Um, if you have a Bible, open it up now. We're going to, uh, we'll look at a couple of verses, but we're going to spend some time in, in Exodus uh, and going forward from there. So just kind of be ready for that. But, but in the Old Testament worship, it has some characteristics that we often don't think about so, so much in our worship today. And it's that the first is that God is the one who actually requires and regulates worship. Now, I don't know if sometimes, again, maybe we don't think about this, but if God is the source of the revelation that we're responding to, God is also revealing how he wants to be worshipped. He's revealing the type of worshipers he wants. And he talks about what it looks like to be that kind of worshiper. Um, so let's, let's look at, at Exodus real quick. Go to, go to chapter 20 of Exodus. This is going to be, um, we're, we're going to read Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy 32 real quick. That's a joke. But I do want you to, to if, if, you, if you have a physical Bible, this is, this is even better. All right, just watch this. Exodus 20 is God giving the Ten Commandments. And we might think, oh, that's law stuff. But what is the first commandment? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The very first commandment is actually not a commandment at all. It's a, it's a, a specification of who God is. And in fact, in Hebrew, these aren't called commandments. They're called the ten words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's a declaration of who God is. And it, it's the foundational piece of everything else that follows in the rest of these books. And so, yes, there are some rules and commandments, but even these rules and commandments are about worship. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And then if your, your section heading is maybe a little different than mine, but the next section heading I see is about idols and altars, which is about worship. And then a couple of pages later, um, in chapter 24, God confirms his covenant. The covenant is about worship. Then there's something, uh, the heading is offerings in the tabernacle. That's about worship. The ark, worship. The table, lampstand, tabernacle, altar of burnt offerings. Uh, how to build the, even the courtyard of, the, of the, the tent of meeting. That's all about worship. Oil for the lampstands. Priestly garments. Ephod, breastplate. Uh, breastplate piece, other priestly garments, consecration of the priests in chapter 30, the altar of incense, the atonement money, the basin for washing, the anointing oil, the incense. This is all about worship. God appoints Bezalel and Aholiab to build the tabernacle. That's about worship. The Sabbath, then the golden calf, which is about wrong worship. Do you get where I'm going here? Do you see a trend? Then there's a little bit of a story, a little bit of a narrative, where Moses gets, um, goes up the mountain again, and he is with the glory of God and getting the new stone tablets after the ones were broken. 
But then in chapter 35, we're back to Sabbath regulations, materials for the tabernacle, more about Bezalel and Aholiab, the ark again, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, worship, 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 worship. <laughs> chapter 40, setting up the tabernacle and the glory of God. I hate to belabor this, but I kind of want to keep going. Leviticus, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, the burnt offering, worship, worship, worship. Fellowship offering again, eating fat and blood for, forbidden, ordination of Aaron and his sons, all about worship. It just keeps going. Clean and unclean foods, that's about worship. Purification after childbirth, that's about worship. It's all about who can be in the presence of God, when, where, and how. And when they do, how they need to show up and what they need to bring. If we were to keep going all the way through Deuteronomy, it's worship, 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 little bit of narrative, worship again. And so in the first five books of the Old Testament, almost three-fourths of it is about regulations and specifications about how God wants us to worship. How many of us think of that on a regular basis? Now, I was kind of coming of age, so to speak, in, in ministry and, and kind of understanding uh, the church a little more in the 80s and 90s. That's when I was growing up and then into adulthood. And I remember people fighting about music styles, for example. Any of you remember that? Churches were splitting up. Uh, the, there were these really progressive churches that would have hymns in the morning at 10, and then they'd have praise choruses at 11.30. You know, that was like, whoa, that was a big deal. And I remember our church that I grew up in, it was a pretty big church. We had, a, we had a, an orchestra and a choir. And so the first service was like this traditional service with, with the traditional hymns. And then the second service, uh, it was the same orchestra, but pared down. And the same choir, but pared down. And they were just doing different songs. They're like, oh, we have this contemporary service. You know, looking back, it's almost kind of funny, but it was cutting edge at the time. And, um, and in our youth group, I would just play the guitar you know, and I thought, wow, we're really, we're rocking it out like this is, but we were singing a lot of the same songs, just doing them on guitar, and, you know, but, but we thought it was great, but some people hated it, hated it, and I remember hearing someone say, it's not worship if there's not an organ. Some of you remember that? You know, don't tell them that there weren't always organs. <laughs> don't tell them that that Adam and Eve didn't have organs, and neither did Peter, neither did Paul. Jesus certainly didn't have one. You know, don't even tell them that the early Puritans didn't have organs in their churches. You know, it's just, it's kind of crazy. But I rarely heard someone ask, what kind of worship does God want? It was, what kind of worship do we want? And so, this is just a healthy reminder that God is the one, first and foremost, who regulates worship, who requires worship, who sets the standards for worship. Now, don't walk away this morning thinking that I'm telling you we need to do this because things have changed. Jesus has come. The temple is no longer there. The law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But the character of God, the character of God that says, I care how you worship me, that hasn't changed. Does that make sense? The other thing about Old Testament worship 
is that it involves sacrifice, it involves offerings, and it involves truth. These are really important pieces of worship in the Old Testament. And just um, one little uh, example of this that even actually goes before the law, before there's any law that God has given to his people, before there's any tabernacle, before there's the Ten Commandments, before any of that stuff, before even Israel exists as a nation, there were these two sons named Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. And Cain and Abel each brought a sacrifice to God. They each brought an offering. And somehow they knew that God wanted these offerings. I assume that God told them because Remember, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he probably told them, these are the kind of things I want when you honor me, when you worship me. And so Cain says there in uh, chapter 4, verse 3 of Genesis, Cain, in the course of time, brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So again, even before the law, we have this expectation that God is the one who decides which worship is acceptable and which worship is not. But we also have this understanding of God's people that he expects sacrifice and offerings. Now, what is it that makes Cain's offering unacceptable and makes Abel's offering acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the interesting thing is it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what makes one offering acceptable and the other not. Some people have said, well, Cain brings fruit or vegetables or some kind of plants, and Abel's bringing an animal, and God wants you to sacrifice an animal. The only problem with that is God also requires the offerings of grain and, and other plants that's something that God expects and demands in the law that we just looked at, that we breeze through there. So I don't think it's just that one's a meat and one's not. There might be a little hint in that it says that Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil and that Abel brought the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock, which means that Abel seems to have brought the choicest, the best, the first, the ideal sacrifice and possibly uh, Cain was just kind of, oh, here's a rutabaga, here's an asparagus, here's a, you know, and he's like, well, this will work. But it doesn't say that. that that's an inference. That's, an, that's uh, an assumption we would have to make. But God knows something is different about Cain and Abel when they bring their sacrifice. So it might be that they brought something different and God sees in that uh, that one is serious about him and the other is not. Or it might just be that God knows their hearts and he knows that if both of them had bought, brought fat portions, maybe he still would have accepted one and not the other. Again, I don't think that we think about these things a lot when we worship. God, what kind of offering do you accept today? What kind of sacrifice is appropriate for you? And what kind of heart is bringing the sacrifice that you'll accept. You know, it's funny that even though we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore, in the New Testament, God still uses this language to talk about our work, worship. So, for example, in the book of Hebrews, it says, we bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. 
bring a sacrifice of praise. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that somehow when we sing to God that we're sacrificing something of ourselves in doing it? Is the act itself sacrificial? I was looking out here today and I was watching you as you were worshiping with song and with praises. I didn't see anyone, and maybe I, did, maybe I missed it, but I didn't see anyone that was like, ah, I love you, Lord. Ah, like, like you were in pain, writhing, making this massive sacrifice to, to open your mouth and sing. Right? A lot of you were actually smiling. It seemed like some of you were even enjoying it. So where's the sacrifice there? But I think for us, the sacrifice is that when we come to worship the Lord and when we come to praise Him, we're actually offering ourselves. And as we proclaim these truths about God in song, we're saying, you are Lord and we are not. So do you think God might care if the attitude of your heart is not the same as the words that are coming out of your mouth? Yeah, I think he does care. Now, I don't say that to scare anyone. I mean, remember, we're under Christ, and we live in a realm of grace and love and acceptance. But grace, love, acceptance doesn't mean that God doesn't care about these things anymore, that he's not honored by certain things and dishonored by others. And so we have this little example in Cain and Abel that God does not accept all worship. Now, I think if Cain had been repentant, God would have accepted Cain, but he didn't accept Cain's worship. Uh, if you know the story, Cain is judged by God for killing his brother because in jealousy over this moment, Cain kills Abel. But even there, God protects him from vengeance. So God displays grace even on those whose worship he doesn't accept. So it's not about whether you're going to heaven or not. But I know those of us who have given our lives to Christ, we want to honor the Lord. We want Him to be glorified by our worship. And so there, is, there are these pieces that go along. There is sacrifice involved even in our worship today. There is an offering that's given. And we'll talk more about the ways that looks in a moment. Uh, but it's helpful to understand a little bit of what it was like for the Jewish people to give these sacrifices and offerings. So I have here, uh, I couldn't find great. Um, I, was, I was less than pleased with some of the, the um, images I could find. But uh, this is a little diagram of the temple that Jesus would have gone to. So if you were to go to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, uh, well, uh, yeah, 2,000 years ago, you would see something like this uh, in Jerusalem. And there's a wall that would extend kind of like there. And all of that area would be what's called the court of the Gentiles. And so it's interesting that God resides in this temple. This is his home, right? And he's welcoming people into his home. But if you're a Gentile, you can only come this close. Because God had some regulations and dispensations and, and requirements for people who were going to come close to him. 
And one of them is that uh, he, he actually says in the Exodus, when the people are coming up to the mountain where he's living, which is kind of weird to think of, God was living on a mountain. Uh, that's where he was physically on earth. And the people came up and he said, hey, don't let the people come up. Don't let them come up this mountain because if you do, they're going to die because they're not holy. And I am. And if they aren't pure and they come up here, they're going to die. So don't let anyone come close to the mountain. But there's a few people that can come up the mountain. Moses can come up the mountain. Joshua can come up the mountain. At one point, Aaron went up the mountain. But you need to purify them first. And they did that ritually with this cleansing, washing, right? And they wore certain clothes, and God said, then you can come. But if you were not uh, God's people, then you couldn't even get past this courtyard. Now, the early tabernacle didn't have this, but this temple has a courtyard for the women. Now, I'm not going to get into that today because that's a little sticky. We'll get into it another time. But there's a courtyard for the women, so the women are allowed to go that far. Then, beyond that, there's another courtyard, and this is where the altar is. There's a wash basin, and there's a place for, for slaughtering the animals that are the sacrifice that people would bring. And the men would go through this courtyard into this place called the priest's courtyard, and the priests were at work here, and they would bring their sacrifices. But everyone who entered this place, anyone who entered this place and anyone who entered this place also had to be ritually clean. So God said, if you had touched a dead animal, you've got to go do some things before you come here. If you have uh, uh, another fun topic, if you've had any emissions from your body, whether natural or unnatural, then you can't come here unless you do some cleansing, unless you do some ritual cleansing. Uh, if, you have, if you have any uh, spots on your arm that could be leprous, you can't come in here. And it wasn't so much that God was trying to exclude lepers, but it was exactly the same as the reason that he only let certain animals in here is that you had to be pure. And if you had marks on your arm, you had different colors on your arm, then you were not one color, you were not pure in the ritual sense. And because God is pure, and we think of pure often in terms of morality, but also pure as in like a single substance, like pure gold or pure silver. If there's any other things in the gold, it's not pure gold. If there's any other uh, colors on your skin, it's not pure skin. If you have fabric, if you have clothes made of mixed fabric, it's not pure, you can't go into the presence of God. If you have an animal that's got any kind of defect or is not the same color, it's not pure and it can't go into the presence of God. So the thing is, everything that comes into this place for worship has to in some way mirror and reflect the God that you're going to worship. And God had very strict regulations on that. So you'd bring your animal here, they'd cut it open, there'd be a fire burning on an altar here, and this is where they would do the ritual washing of the different parts. So you'd cut the animal open, cut it apart, you'd wash the pieces, and then you'd put it on the altar. And when you put it on the altar, it burns, there's a fire there, and that incense, that smell, that barbecue would go up to the Lord's nostrils, is what the Bible says, and he smelled it and he would receive their worship 
receive their sacrifice and their offering. Now that's where a lot of people could go. But if you wanted to go even closer to God, then you had to be a priest. And, oh, I don't know that I have the image. I thought I had an image. Let me see if I have an image. No, I don't. I'm sorry. I thought I did. So inside this holy place right here, there are two different chambers. And in the first chamber, this is where the menorah would be with the candles that stayed lit for eight days for Hanukkah, right? This is where the showbread would be. This is the special holy bread that the priests would have baked every day, fresh, new, to, to put before the Lord. And there would also be uh, an incense, um, uh, a stand of incense where they'd be burning incense constantly before the Lord. But in this room, there is a curtain. And the curtain separates the holy place from the most holy place. That's where God lives. And only one person can go in that room only once a year. The high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, can go into the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's God's throne. That's his seat, his chair. And God sits on his chair, on his throne, and he governs his kingdom. And so literally, one person, once a year, could go into the presence of God the same way Moses did and make a sacrifice for all the people for their sins. In fact, most of the sacrifices that take place out here, most of them are for things that we wouldn't even call sins. I was walking along the road and someone was injured because they had been beaten by robbers and I went over to help them up and they were bleeding. So now I need to go make a sacrifice so I can be ritually pure again. Now you wouldn't call that a sin, right? But it makes you unclean. Or, another example in the Old Testament law, I was, I was chopping wood and the axe head flew off the handle and it hit somebody. Is that a sin? It is in the Old Testament. You go and you make a sacrifice so that you will not be held guilty before anyone for the accident. Or, and we could actually go down quite a long list, right? But if you, I don't know, lie to your business partner, you can't come here and make a sacrifice. There's no sacrifice for that. Or if you cheat on your spouse, you can't come here and make a sacrifice. But once a year, the high priest can make a sacrifice on your behalf. It actually deals with the things we would call sins. So he goes into the presence of God and he sacrifices on behalf of the people. And tradition says that the people would literally tie a rope around his leg because if he went into this most holy place and God didn't accept his sacrifice, he would be struck dead. And no one could go in to get him, so they would drag him out of the holy place. This is how seriously God takes worship. It's just really serious stuff. And this language of sacrifice, and uh, uh, like, like I mentioned in the New Testament, it comes up in worship in the New Testament too. 
So when the followers of Jesus thought about worship, they thought about it in relationship to this whole process. Do you guys remember the story in the book of Acts where there's a husband and wife who sell a property? And they come and give the money from the sale of the property to the church. But they don't give all the money, which is actually quite fine. The next time you sell a house, you don't have to give all of it to us. Just some of it, right? No, I'm just kidding. It's a free gift that they were making. Free gift. But they pretended that it was all of it. So does God like and accept gifts that are given freely for the furtherance of the ministry of the church? Absolutely. But does he accept hearts that give that gift in deceitful ways, pretending that it's more than it is, or pretending that they're more than they are, trying to look good in front of the church, their friends, the Lord? No. So you know what happened to that couple? They died. The Holy Spirit struck them down where they stood. And in fact, they were dragging the husband's body out when the wife came in, and she lied too, and the same thing happened to her. Now, I don't know of any example of that happening anywhere in the world right now. I think God did it that one time to say, hey, I'm serious about this. It's not that he's gonna, he wants to strike people dead all the time. But he's saying, I'm still serious about this, just like I was back then. Just because that temple is not a part of your worship doesn't mean that a holy God is not part of your worship. And so God was saying, hey, don't forget Worship has more to do with who you worship than who's worshiping. Which leads to this final point, is that when you worship God, that your character must in some way align to God's character. So God makes this point in Psalm 51. Uh, this is David. David made lots of sacrifices at the tabernacle. The temple hadn't been built yet. His son built it. But he made lots of sacrifices. Uh, there were times when he made massive, massive sacrifices to honor the Lord. Hundreds and hundreds and sometimes thousands of animals were brought to be sacrificed to the Lord to honor him. Because David was showing how much God was worth to him. And there's this great little story, I think it's in 2 Samuel, where, where David's coming to make a sacrifice and somebody else offers to give the, the animals for the sacrifice to David for the offering. And David says, no, no, no. I can't make a sacrifice or give an offering to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything. All right, he's saying, I can't, it, it would be dishonoring to the Lord for me to give an offering that didn't, that didn't require some sacrifice on my part. He wasn't doing this because he'd sinned. He wasn't doing it because it was a requirement. He was going above and beyond. He says, this is how much God is worth to me. But he sinned. And he realized that he couldn't just go make a sacrifice for this. Now, there's two things about this passage that I want to point out to you. So let me read it first. He says, for you, did not, you do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. Right? So this is after David's sin with Bathsheba and he murders 
her husband and, you know, there's lying and cover up and all this stuff, right? He says, what you really want is for me to be repentant, humbled, and turn back, turn to you in humility and, and, and a contrite heart. So two things here. One is, I mentioned a lot of times there's really no sacrifice available for the kind of things we would often call sins. So sometimes we read this verse and we think, oh, God doesn't really care about those sacrifices. What he really cares about is your heart. And there's a yes and a no there. Yes, God cares mostly about your heart, but he still cares about the sacrifices. The problem for David in this passage is there is no sacrifice available to him for his sin. So all he can do is come to the Lord in a contrite, humbled manner repentant manner but it also says this David's making all these other wonderful sacrifices but his heart's in the wrong place then God's not going to accept even the sacrifices that he would otherwise accept he he's not going to accept the worship that he would otherwise receive so there needs to be an alignment of ourselves with the Lord I don't know if you remember when we were looking at the um, the book of Romans in Romans chapter 12 we talked about this and in Romans chapter 12 uh, verse 1 it says offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God I'm just going to get it so I don't bungle the reference here um, offer, your, offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God this is your true and proper worship you see that word proper worship there's improper worship and proper worship do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul is saying, hey, you are now the offering, and you need to align your mind with the mind of Christ. You need to align your will with the will of God. You need to align your perspective with God's perspective so that you can be a pleasing and appropriate, welcome, accepted sacrifice. Because anything that's offered to God needs to look like God. The animals need to be perfect because God is perfect. They need to be of one color because God is pure. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not room to offer different types of sacrifices. So even in the Old Testament, if you can't afford a ram, then you bring a dove. Right? If, if, you're, if you don't have the wealth required to bring a certain type of sacrifice, there's an alternate option. And so some of us have more to offer than others in different types of ways. But we can all offer ourselves. We can all offer ourselves. And that is a pleasing, acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. But ourselves need to look like God. This is why, and I love uh, Denise prayed about this, that this is why God is conforming us into the image of Christ Jesus. This is why when we gather together, on Sunday morning, in our small groups, and in one-on-one, -on -one, we're trying to encourage each other to walk more closely with the Lord and that our character would be shaped by His character. But there is a tension here, right? Because in one sense, God has already made us fully righteous in Jesus Christ. This is why every one of us can walk into this room and worship the Lord and, and the roof doesn't cave in. I have, you know, if you ever talk to unbelievers, like, oh, I don't want to go to church, lightning will strike. You know, it's like, who do you think are the people that are coming in already? 
Where do you th what do you think we are? We're, we're also people who deserve to have lightning strikes, but by the grace of God, it doesn't, because in Christ, I am righteous. And also, and also, and here's the tension, I can fully rest in the righteousness of Christ, and I should. And I know that God's desire for me and my desire for myself is that my actions and attitudes and thoughts conform with the reality that I already have in the gospel. And so God is not looking at us to nitpick and to strike us dead or to cast us out. But there is a type of worship that honors God more. And so we begin to see here with this last point that all of our life is a part of our worship because all of our life is being called into alignment or being called into conformity with Jesus Christ. You know, in the temple, it's very clear what things were holy and what were not. And in Jewish practice, even today, there are certain dishes that are used on Sabbath, for example, that aren't used any other time. Certain utensils that are used. But in the temple, you knew something was holy. It was sacred, meaning it was set apart for God because, because in the temple, there were all of these items that could only be used in the temple. Plates that could only be used in the temple. Lavers that could only be used in the temple. Forks that could only be used in the temple. Uh, all, all sorts of these things. Bread that could only be, you know, that show bread that could only be before the Lord and only the priest could eat, with rare exceptions. But then Jesus comes. Jesus comes. And all of a sudden, everything Jesus touches becomes holy. Everything that he interacts with now has holiness on it. And now Jesus is in us. And we're holy. And the things that we have become holy. And so there's this kind of uh, yeah, sacred and holier mean basically the same thing. There's this sacralization of things in the world when Jesus comes. So it's not as clear anymore. Uh, there's not these sharp distinctions between things that are holy and things that are not. But what that means is that wherever we are, everything that we offer to God can be a holy, pleasing sacrifice. Our time is holy. Our thoughts are holy. Our actions are holy. Our relationships are holy. And we don't think about things like that often. Because again, we often think of holiness in terms of morality. But the reason we think of holiness as being moral is because to be holy is to be like God, to be set apart for God, and God is righteous and moral. And so the things that are holy should also be righteous and moral. But what it really means is that these things are set apart for worship, set apart for the glory of God, that they can be used to display what God is worth to us. When... We sing songs up here. What we're doing is with words, we're telling each other 
We're telling God. By the way, we're telling angelic beings what God is worth to us. And when we allow our hearts to be in it, we're telling ourselves, each other, angelic beings and God, what God is worth to us. And when we conform our lives to the truths that we're singing, we're displaying what God is worth to us. And when we let go of certain things that we've been holding on to that don't honor God, we sacrifice those things. We're displaying what God is worth to us. And when we, when we press into hard things so that we can grow and mature and overcome these, uh, the, the, our, you know, the hurts and the pain of our past, we're saying to each other and to God and to angelic beings, what God is worth to us. When we go to work and we show up as people who are honest and trustworthy and don't cut corners and don't take glory for someone else's accomplishments and, and refuse to, to do improper things to get ahead in our career, we're saying this is what God is worth to us. You know, over and over, multiply it out to every aspect and area of your life. Again, not that we have to be perfect because, thank goodness, Jesus is perfect for us. But the more that our hearts, minds, lives, actions, everything align with God's character, the more honor he receives because we're saying this is what you are worth to us. Old Testament worship and New Testament worship are not the same. But over the next few weeks as we look at the New Testament and the things that God invites us into as worshipers and the things that God commands us for, to as worshipers, we're going to see that these themes carry over. This is kind of like the background material. It helps you to see these, these realities going forward. And I believe that as we really come to understand the depth of what worship can be, that it's going to enrich uh, even the things that we've already experienced of worship. So, for example, when we sing songs here, that's not the equivalent of worship, but it's part of worship. But when you understand how all the pieces fit together, it makes that more rich and more enriching and more honoring to the Lord. And then we're going to let that, hopefully, you know, there's some energy that comes in our singing and our, and our time together that's going to to also give us energy around the other areas of our lives that can be worshipped to the Lord. Because even though the worship that we give now is different looking compared to the worship that Israel gave 2,000, 3,000 years ago, God still expects us to model our worship after his own character. And he still wants us to align our lives to what we offer him. So that whether we're giving fruit of the field or the fat of the animal or a song of praise or a financial gift or a good deed and kindness to a neighbor, that our heart is aligned with the, with the offering of praise. That is an offering. That is worship that God loves to accept. So I encourage you, stick with us the next few weeks. 
And then we're going to bring all this, this hospitality and worship piece back together uh, to see what God is, is inviting us to joyfully into as we worship him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that though your heart and your character haven't changed, God, that you have made it, in a sense, so much easier for us to come to you and worship. Lord, you've broken down and taken away some of the obstacles that would have prevented many of us from worshiping you at all. God, walls, literal physical walls that would have kept us out in the courtyards. Um, barriers that would keep us from coming to your presence. Lord, I'm just reminded again that when Jesus died, that that veil in the temple was ripped in two, signifying that we no longer were restricted from access to your presence. That we, like the high priest, could go to be with you. But unlike him, we could go every day of the year and be in your presence and honor you and worship you and glorify you. God, I thank you for that. Lord, also help us remember that in some ways the calling is higher. It's not just the externals that have to be uh, uh, matched up to the requirements of your, of your holiness and your goodness. Lord, Lord, our hearts, you're calling our hearts to be shifted and changed. You're calling for uh, not a physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart to be tender and yielding to you. God, you're inviting our whole lives to be worshipped to you, not just certain moments and times. But Lord, we know that that's not an onerous enhancement, but it can be a joyous enhancement. It can be a joyful and and welcome uh, raising of the bar because with that raised bar comes a greater delight in your presence comes a deeper relationship with you that no longer do you dwell on earth on a mountain or in a tabernacle or in a temple but now you dwell on earth in our hearts and in our midst so Lord we love you and we thank you for that in Jesus name we pray Amen